Yo, this hot, this the spot, there it is, pod.com. We're interviewing the best comedians, so tune in quick and get your ears receiving them. We're talking about life and life to stream right to you from the microphone right to your home, dude. Side note, this might get embarrassing, but no, don't sweat, yo, because there it is. Welcome to the There It Is Podcast, the comedy podcast to help you find your inspiration. I'm your host, Jason Farr. Let's do this. Thanks so much for joining us. Great guest today. We have comedian Chanel Ali. But first, just wanted to mention quickly that we have some new episodes on the YouTube page for you to check out. Uh, we posted those a few days ago, so definitely check that out. And they are enhanced episodes that a brother of the show, Trey, did. So uh, go over to youtube.com slash there it is to check that out. And don't forget to like and subscribe. All right, today's episode, as I mentioned, is with stand-up comedian and actor Chanel Ali. And she's awesome. And she also offers some of the best advice I think anyone's given on this podcast before about getting a manager or agent. And or agent, I should say, because she has both. And she also offers some other really great insights. Let's just get right to it. Here's my chat with Chanel Ali. You're in Brooklyn now, but haven't you lived all over? Like, you, I've heard Philly, I've heard Jersey, I've heard California. Did you move around yeah. a lot? Yeah, I moved around a ton. I was actually a foster kid, so mm-hmm. I was in the system uh, pretty much like from age two to age six. And then I lived with some relatives after that. Um, and one of the relatives was in the Air Force. So I traveled with him for a bit. Um, and then I ended up in California, which is where I went to high school. And then eventually I moved back to Philly for college. And so I've lived in Philly the longest. I kind of grew up in that area the most. So Philly feels like home. And I think I just decided, like, when you don't have parents, you could just pick a place. And, like, there's no rules, you know? Like, yeah, you know, yeah. Cinderella, nobody ever asked Cinderella, where are you from from? You know? Like, <laughs> Just say whatever. Yeah. Uh, But you started your comedy life in in Philly. Absolutely. Yeah, I started there. I went to my first open mic there. And I was there for like two and a half years of my early career before Mm -hmm. I started to feel like there was a bit of a ceiling and I didn't want to touch it. So uh, I sold everything and got on a Megabus and moved to New York City. Oh, wow. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, and you sold everything, so that's uh, how you raise money to travel, I guess, and have a place to stay for a little bit in New York? Yeah, absolutely. I actually, um, I did it because I got some incredible advice from Chris Cotton, who is a a Philadelphia comedian who's been on Comedy Central and a lot of things. Unfortunately, he passed away a few years ago. But um, I was telling him, I remember at a bar in Philly, like, yeah, I'm planning on moving to New York City, and I think I'm going to get an apartment in Jersey that's cheaper and like bring my, you know, my apartment and commute over the bridge every day. And I remember him saying, that's dumb. You don't need any of that stuff. And I was like, no, I need my sofa. It's a sectional and I bought it and I need it. And he was like, you don't need any of that. And it's only going to weigh you down and slow you down and stress you out. Why don't you sell everything? And I just thought he was so crazy, but you know, it was really good advice and it was really hard to sell everything. I felt very emotional as people are coming to get the things. But um, if I could go back in time, I would do it that exact same way again. Oh, cool. It is good advice because I moved up here. My girlfriend and I moved up. We, uh, 
We didn't sell everything, but we didn't bring everything either. We just weren't going to have the space because we were going to be subleasing. So it is easier to have as little as possible when you come up here and then just land in a place. And Yeah, and I literally moved into an Airbnb. Like I just paid it up for like two weeks. And then when I got there, I just um, kind of negotiated with the lady off of Airbnb and being like, let's just do it, you and me. And I'll pay you and you'll get to keep more of the money. And she was like, I love money. So, <laughs> you know, she was really down to do it. And that helped me just kind of buy time to decide where I needed to be, like what part of the city I needed to be in, what scene was really, um, you know, drawing me in the most. And around that time, uh, Hannibal Burris was hosting the Knitting Factory in Brooklyn, which was like a very big show there. Mm-hmm. And I went there one night and like saw incredible comedians uh, Robin Williams stopped in one night wow. and it was just like such a renaissance energy um, that I hadn't ever experienced outside of a, like a very brick and mortar comedy club. I was like, man, this independent show is like really pushing the boundary of comedy out here and attracting huge, n- huge names. And so uh, that really sold me on Brooklyn. And that's why I just tried to throw myself right in the middle of that scene. Oh, very cool. Um, when you started comedy in Philly, were you in college at the time or had you just graduated? I had just graduated and I always knew that I was a comedian. I remember first having that fully formed thought when I was seven. Um, but I just, you know, didn't say it out loud for 20 years because it sounded crazy. And uh, being a foster kid, I felt a lot of pressure to go to college and get a good job and like just like beat all these statistics that I felt like people were always telling me about. So I just didn't allow myself to even dream like that. And then I got out of college, tried it once, and then went through that whole like spiritual journey of like, I don't know, having like a quarter life crisis where you're trying to decide like, what is happiness? You know, what, what am I supposed to be? What am I working towards? I'm going to wake up every day and have to look at my life choices. Am I going to be honest about what I want? And for me, it was like, you already know that you are that. It's not even a question for you. You know that inside. So are you willing to suppress it and go do something else? Because I was good at everything. I was good at every job. I was great at school. I could put my mind to anything, but it was like, man, you you, you will have to also lie to yourself to do that other thing. So mm. let's try not lying for a little while and see what happens. So I just committed to six months to a year of being fully honest about, I just want to do comedy. And, you know, things started to pay off and, and I'm, I'm really happy I took that leap. That's dope. You mentioned uh, feeling like you, it was silly to think you could do comedy, even though you knew since you were seven and you had a lot of people telling you. You probably, being a foster kid, you did have a ton of people telling you that. There's family and then there are the foster parents, however many you had, yeah. and then like whoever in the system who was yes, like a caseworker or somebody. I specifically remember our social worker being like, and I remember her or feeling like she was trying to come from a place of love, really. Yeah. And her saying, like, you know, in your situation, when you graduate high school, you just should go into the military. Just, like, go mm. into the military, let them pay for your college, get a job, whatever. Like, this is going to be a way for you to have, you know, some type of support because you're going to just be out here. And I just remember thinking, like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to be so much more successful at life than you. And that's a shame that you have all this education and these degrees and you're trying to tell me what I should do. And I already know I'm absolutely going to be better at life than you are. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, uh, and it's, it's great that you had that strength to have that attitude at that time, because a lot of people just have one or two parents telling them that, 
and not this like wave of adults telling them that. And, yeah. you know, they still end up going the route that the adults are telling them they have to go or that they should go. And I feel like I, I kind of built power in myself by reminding myself that I wasn't always just without parents. I was also without boundaries mm. and that I was able to really be authentically me. And I had a lot of friends whose parents were overreaching, you know, telling them, hey, you can't just keep trying to do comedy. You need to go to grad school. You need to like go and stop worrying about theater, all types of things that I saw them uh, struggle with and feel like I have to appease these other people and also myself. And I've only had to hold myself accountable. And I just feel like that's, you know, propelled me a thousand times. I hold myself to a very high standard. And when I'm disappointed with my work ethic, I think I probably am just as bad as my supposed parents could have been, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. but it's also like, I'm just, you know, able to really decide who I am and and what's important to me. I'm really interested in in what you're saying about not wanting to lie to yourself and not living this, not not right. doing the regular nine to five job because you can, and that's what everyone said and like plan A I used and to judge, lie to yourself. I used to judge people who would say like, I'm an artist. I can't just, you know, have a job. I have to create and feel. I used to be like, yeah, bro, like you do too much drugs. Like, I don't know. You have, <laughs> this is how society works, man. Like wake up, you know, like I really used to feel like that. Um, and then I, you know, I went to college and I had a job and I was a paralegal and I had, you know, a a good amount of prestige for doing good work. And I just hated it. I just hated feeling very unfulfilled. And I hated knowing that I was not being my truest self because my truest self was already very sure that I was a comedian. I had tried comedy at least a few times. I knew that that was it, even though I hadn't, you know, exploded. And it was just like, man, if you've already tasted it and you know, then every single day you wake up and keep trying to be a lawyer or a paralegal or whatever, it's furthering a lie. It is. And I used to convince myself like, well, maybe I'll go to law school and then become a lawyer and then I'll try comedy. Mm. And then the smart person in me would say, what has that ever happened? You, we can't all be this one talk show host who I know did it two that stories way. and that's it yeah i mean you everyone can't. else if anything you ask those guys and they say you know i probably did it backwards i probably mm-hmm. should have focused on this thing i really wanted and then maybe later in life like you know school's not going anywhere so i had to really have some scary conversations with, with myself and so many people in my life were like i just don't understand what you're doing i don't understand you're going out every night hanging with mostly men at terrible bars in philly and it's like, what is, what is this? And I just had to, you know, trust in the process and feel like, well, even though I don't have any money and I don't know what the next day is going to hold, I slept better last night feeling like I was getting closer to it. Yeah. Yeah. It's tough to do something that doesn't feel natural to you. Even if it's, even if you're good at it, uh, you yeah. feel like this isn't who you are and this isn't who you want to be. And so, trying to go that route even though it's quote unquote safe can be a really energy sucking experience or or even soul crushing if you're working at a place that has a bad work environment so you're not yeah. only lying to yourself to get up to go there and work but then you have to endure a horrible work environment i mean that that's got to be terrible really- for people 
it really just taught me about like recognizing when you feel a shift in your motivation. And I was always motivated to do whatever job I had because I needed the money. (laughs) You know, I was always motivated to try to get more money, to try to live better. But comedy, you know, I was motivated by a couple more minutes of, of stage time. I would walk 30 minutes to an open mic to save, you know, a SEPTA token because I was that motivated to get on stage. And I just, you know, once I recognized that within myself, I was like, well, keep moving this way. Keep, you know, shifting all of your energy to focus on this thing because it's feeding you. It's making you feel right. And, um, you know, I I really just accredit that to like just having a hard life, just being like, I'm not gonna, I've already climbed this crazy mountain of trying to be an exemplary foster kid who goes to college and successfully becomes an adult that's so rough. That was so hard. So now if the battle is I have to pick my dream and work on it, that sounds way easier. So to me, it was like, you deserve that. You went through that shit. You deserve to wake up every day and focus on the thing that makes you feel good. And also I'm not hurting anybody. That's the argument I used to always give people. I'm just making people laugh. I know people who do way worse things (laughs) and make great money. Like uh, the people that were skeptical, skeptical about what I was doing. That's how I would always calm them down. Like when you really break it down, all I'm doing is making people giggle. Can't be that bad. It can't be. (laughs) That's a really good way to put it. I'm just making people giggle. (laughs) (laughs) No, I love that. Yeah. And when you are going through the early years of your career and, and you're pursuing this, and uh, you are sleeping better at night because of it, but it's, I guess, still a grind. If you're, if you're still, you know, starting out, it's always like a tough process. How did that experience help or hurt you finding your own voice as a comedian? Um, I think it helped a ton. I mean, before I moved to New York City, I thought that I had a pretty solid voice in comedy. And I thought, oh, you know, I've got like 20 minutes of material that I've been shopping around. I've done a couple festivals. You know, I think I kind of know what I'm starting to talk about. I did not know a damn thing. You know, I got to New York (laughs) and sat in front of people who read the newspaper every day and know everything about what's happening in the entire world. And they looked at me like, yeah, I knew exactly where you were going with that joke. You haven't pushed me at all. Nobody in here is impressed about your Philly quips you know like you're gonna have to bring some real comedy or you're gonna have to really expose yourself and I think that's what New York kind of forces you to do you have to you strip down in front of crowds and let them know what you're actively going through what you think they're going through you have to talk about lessons you've learned you have to you know be intellectually sound and offer a good argument that people don't hear every day you know Um, so as an artist I also just think sometimes being hungry just forces you to be you know, unapologetically yourself on stage because this is, I've given everything. I spent my last $2 to get here. You guys are going to let me empty my brain because Mm -hmm, (laughs) this mm -hmm. is all I have, you know? So, yeah, I think, I think it's part of being an artist. I, I, I watched a lot of documentaries about uh, New York city artists before I moved there. One in particular um, about Basquiat, the painter, and just him talking about like, just like having no money and walking around the streets and like making something to paint on a wall and just signing it and like building this buzz, this super, supernatural, very gritty way. And it just made me feel okay with the moments where I didn't have anything because it made me feel like I was working towards something. This is very interesting. I want to unpack what you were saying about 
being in front of these New York comics who felt like they knew exactly where you were going or already knew what direction you're going just because they've, ex- I guess, exposed themselves to a lot of different ideas. I'm curious how you then recalculate so that you really can bring up ideas that they couldn't have seen coming. Like, what what is that process? Did, did they go into that with you? Like, how, how they would have approached it? Um, I think sometimes some comics would ask me about, like, things from my childhood or things from my my adolescence that they thought were unique. Like, mm. for instance, I met my dad when I was 18 after a court-ordered uh, paternity test. Uh, he turned it out. He turned out to be a very wealthy guy in New Jersey. And I lived with him for a little bit. And then I realized he was a really terrible person. Mm. And I was like, ah, you kind of suck. Like, I just really don't want you in my life anymore. So I kind of like broke up with my dad. I gave him an ultimatum like, hey, you're going to have to like treat me good or I can go back to having no dad because I was doing pretty good at that. So let's do that. And I had a lot of comics always saying, like, you should write about that. You got to talk about that, like really pushing me to challenge my emotions to find some art find some not even just find some funny yet but find some art in there about talking about this unique thing that you went through and I used to always push back and say I can't talk about that I don't have any jokes about that it's not funny I'm really yeah. sick of this guy you know like I just to me it was like I can't I can't I can't and now I have so many bits about him so many bits about moments that were already within me that I needed these comics to forced me to run towards so that I could remember like, oh, that was an interesting conversation I had that set up to that thing that was terrible, you know? So it just like, they forced me to decide like these moments and these things have helped you become who you are and helped you define what you think is funny, how you pull humor and healing out of things. So don't be afraid to dissect those and go back in and and even talk about it out loud. Just say, here's what happened. Here's a crazy, you know, conversation I had with my dad about, I might break up with you if you don't do better. And that sounds crazy to say, but like, you know, let's, let's unpack some of it. So, um, And I really, really give credit to specifically black men in comedy for always saying, I heard you talk a little on stage about that thing about your grandmother. That sounds very hard. I want you to talk more about it. Go even deeper in that thing and really tell us what was happening and paint that picture and explain how you feel, you know, really dive into it because there's something in that honesty, you know? Yeah. Um, And it's true. That's really interesting. It brings up a couple of ideas to me. One is that, for one, if you're talking about personal experiences that are unique to you, yeah. that's one way that they're not going to be able to anticipate where you're going. But then Absolutely. also, if you are dissecting those experiences that you've had, it it does inform you of what your filter is that you can now process whatever bit you want to do. Like if you're not talking about personal life, you're just maybe talking about the world. Yeah. The stories and I think that everyone of- has. A lot of new comics, especially, they get on stage and they're like, I'm going to tackle political events. It's time for me to offer a new type of moderate thinking Mm -hmm. that we haven't considered. And then maybe I'll be funny if I don't shout too much. And Mm -hmm. they usually fail. They usually fail because they they don't have anything that's rooted in in real wit. And it's not really very funny topic wise. Mm -hmm. But the same thing that they're trying to achieve by trying to shake up this crowd with their new age beliefs we could do by diving back into ourselves and explaining how we became this way, you know? So it's like, we accomplished the same thing, but I do it with, you know, a little more storytelling, a little more Mm -hmm. warmth, 
you know? So it's just like, it's just a different way of trying to reshape the way we think about things. Cause I talk about difficult things. I talk about race and relationships and, you know, not having parents. I talk about hard things, but I do it in a way that doesn't sound like I'm always preaching. Instead, I'm just, you know, taking you along for the journey that I've had and mm-hmm. asking you if you can relate. And luckily, more often than not, people can. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's super interesting. And it is, I, I, I think it would be a challenge to just sort of present your perspective about the news. Mm-hmm. without that setup of and here's who I am cuz that Absolutely. then it can be a little funnier when you are just filtering the news through your perspective because they know who you are and they they know how you think now because you've gone through well here's how I grew up and here's who I am I I have given comedians that exact note when they've gotten off stage and they've been like man like that crowd wasn't really going with me and I was like yeah cuz you didn't make them love you first you started out with, here's my opinions, and here's how I'm going to change you and push you and shake you and blah, blah, blah. No relationship in the world works like that. Right. Unless they already love you, unless they already know you and bought tickets and came to your show. They don't know you. You're some comedian on a lineup. Your first couple bits have to be, here's how you can relate to me. Right. And here's why I am the way I am. Then we're going to start to talk about the heavier things. I never started a set with, hey, I don't have parents. We're going to work up to that. <laughs> We're going to get there, you know? <laughs> I'm going to take it easy on you guys, and we'll work up to me exposing more of who I am, but also, like, I'm going to get you on my team, and I'm going to make you trust me so that you don't think I'm going to just hit you with a sob story and make you feel uncomfortable, because that sucks. Yeah. <laughs> you know? When you're doing an hour, how are you structuring the show, then? Because you just said that you're not going to start with the I didn't have parents. You're going to do that towards the end, so... How do you start and what is what does come in the middle? Um, well, I had to do an hour a lot in uh, 2019 and like early 2020 because I was um, preparing for my album. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my my most, I guess, e- the easiest way to explain my method is that I always start with the present. So I always start with jokes that are very related to what I'm currently living, what I'm currently going through. So right now, if I was doing an hour I would absolutely start with my pandemic material. Here's some things up here, a couple of pandemic jokes that I wrote about how our lives have changed. I'm relating to you. We're talking about who I am now. Then I'm going to go backwards and talk about how I got here. So, hey, I'm from Philly and here's how I grew up a little bit. And here's some cute Philly jokes to get you understanding the area. All right. Now you like me a little more. You think I'm I'm smart. I went to college. Boom. Now we're going to talk about my family history and how I defined race and relationships. And I have a brother and I just met my dad. Guess what? I don't like him. All right. Let's talk about some really funny dating stuff now you know <laughs> so I'm gonna group all these jokes together and you know really kind of have them in kind of like short stanzas of five to six jokes and every topic is gonna be a bit of a, a little like a uh, roller coaster of taking them on peaks and highs of things that I know are gonna emotionally challenge them and things that I know will draw them in and bring them back and make them feel a little lighter but still you know everything's gonna be funny we're all gonna have a good time right but yeah you're taking them on a journey you're taking them on a ride and I want to softly introduce them to the harder things yeah that's very interesting and I've uh when I'd see an hour set I was just sort of taken a- along for the ride but I always wondered When it comes to an hour, like how are people really, from a storytelling point of view, structuring this? I've not really heard anyone break that down. Yeah. And when I was preparing for um, 
to shoot my my album, we had two shows, an early show and a late show. I was able to do a little over an hour on every show. And I had been doing so many headlining gigs for months prior to that, just not even coming out with a set list, just getting out there and talking and deciding, like, what are my favorite bits? What do I want to talk about? Talk about. And so that day in the green room, I wrote out my set list, which was just like, I don't know, probably five stanzas of jokes, of like group jokes. And I wrote them down. It was a very long page at that point, <laughs> like cause some of them have like longer names. And then I came out on stage and I set it on the stool and I looked at the crowd and I never looked at the paper. <laughs> and I just did this hour. And I remember so many people saying, we can't believe you didn't look at that paper. We all saw that it had the list and the order and everything. And you put it down and you did it. And they were like, and was it perfect? And I was like, I said two words in it that I remember I didn't want to say that I accidentally stumbled a little or just like my mentally went to another place. But other than that, no, because I do feel like comedy is minutes. It's preparation. And then when you are super prepared and that opportunity comes, all of those skills start to snap into place and you just either ride that wave or you are prepared. It's just it just feels like either or, you know. Um, yeah. And that's what I always say to young comics who ask me, like, how, how do you get good? It's like you just have to do comedy as much as you possibly can, because mm -hmm. if we compare co comedy to um, basketball, which I love to do. Imagine if you're starting basketball and someone gave you a basketball and said you can only use this for five minutes to practice in front of these people. You can do a little practice and then that's it. You come back the next day. Maybe we'll give you more. But it would take you so long to get good at that sport if you right. only do it under these constraints with these tools and they only give you this many minutes. So you just have to get as most minutes as you can to get good. Right. And then being in the cities where you can get up a few times a night. Also, multi-genre mics helped me so much in Philly. Like I went to open mics that had rappers, poets, pianists, like. They were just doing whatever and they never ran a light. They didn't care that I was doing 20 minutes and had no jokes because I had never been doing comedy. They didn't care. They would just give me the mic. Let this girl go. You know? Oh, that's cool. So you were saying that helped because you had the freedom to just kind of fail and try different things. Yeah. And just really the time, the actual minutes. Yeah. Because, you know, most open mics, they're going to give you five minutes or less. In New York, they're absolutely going to give you less, maybe three if you paid. <laughs> right. But right. Um, in Philly, sometimes I would go play a crowd that was like over 100 people and it was an open mic, a multi-genre mic, and they would let me do 20 minutes. And so like that just gave me a huge leg up on all the Philadelphia competition because m most people weren't getting as many minutes as me. Mm -hmm. and, and I, I was out like there. I feel like the crowds at a multi-genre open mic are just so game for whatever is coming up on stage. You don't have any expectations. So when Especially, a stand-up comes up after a poet or after a musician, they're just like, hey, this is cool. This is something yes. else. They're so welcoming to the energy. They're not exhausted from seeing 10 comedians, four of them with the same premises. Yep. Yeah, it's, it's a very different vibe, but it's like, it helps you find out where the good is. Let's get through some of this because obviously some of it's not going to work, but it helps you sort it out for sure. Oh yeah, that's uh, there should be more multi-genre open mics. Yeah, totally. <laughs> One of the things I really like about your comedy is your vibe on stage. It's a perfect vibe for someone who's going to make me giggle. You know, like it's. Absolutely. I see that. I see that. Yeah. And um, I always actually say that with my manager. I'm like, it's it's hard to be in entertainment and like be a really nice person. 
<laughs> it's really unique when you walk into a room and you're like filled with happy thoughts and you can tell that everybody else there is like, I just care about money. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, did that develop over time or was that something that sort of you were able to let just come natural for you? I think it developed over time, but I think I, I have always been, um, my boyfriend says pleasant, <laughs> <laughs> which I don't really like so much. Sometimes I remember when we first started dating, he used to always say that about me. He said, you know what I love about you? You're just so pleasant. And I was like, you just wait. You just <laughs> wait. When I show you that I'm not feeling happy today, you're going to be feeling differently, you know? Um, but also I, when I first started comedy, I had a lot of stage fright, even though I absolutely knew I was supposed to do it. And I could feel that I had all of the skills and like the personality to do it. I was just terrified of talking to people at length, you know, mm-hmm. especially in that type of realm. So I broke myself of stage fright by telling jokes on the Broad Street line in Philly, um, which is just, you know, a train that takes people up and down the main street in Philly, but it takes them to a lot of the sports complexes. So sometimes it'd be like hockey fans or basketball fans or like baseball fans, very rowdy, whatever. And I would get on the train and I would have like two marks, like two friends that didn't look like they were really with me or talking to me and they would sit down. And then I would just get up in the car and I'd say, hey, you guys like comedy? Well, I'm about to do it. Here it comes. And I would just start telling my jokes. And, uh, you know, some people didn't like it. They wanted me to shut up. And some people did like it and were very encouraging. But it helped me very quick decide, like, what are the words that you absolutely need to say? And what are these extra words that you're Mm. filling in this? I literally call it fat. You need to trim this fat. And it helped me recognize that I was getting nervous because I wasn't communicating in the most efficient way. I was saying all this extra stuff and I wasn't able to really be myself because I was thinking too much about the words. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I know how I communicate with the person. I know how engaged they can get, how I have inflection in my voice, how I bring them down and speak softly. I know how I do that. And I know that's very engaging. And that's what makes me, you know, very a very great storyteller. So I had to like break myself self of that stage fright so that I really could be myself on stage. Um, and I still think I put on a little bit on stage, not a lot. Yeah. My regular personality is pretty close, but I wrap it up just a little bit, you know? Yeah. And I, and you have to exaggerate it a little bit uh, on stage. <laughs> it's energy. You got to get people to match you. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. How do you do that? Is it just coming out automatically with that that uh that energy that you're talking about yeah yeah sometimes i'm also very particular about like um lighting i will i'll tell somebody hey i want you to change the lighting in here especially now that i'm a headliner and i can like make Mm -hmm. more requests um i i I call it going beyonce beyonce mode whenever i need to get smart with someone and tell them hey change this around because this show is setting us up to fail Um, So I care a lot about intro music. I care a lot about it being upbeat and setting that tone. And I I start every single set by saying, hey, guys. And I wait a little bit. And a lot of people will say, hey, back. Or they think that I'm really talking to them. I'm not talking to them. I am doing a mic check in the mic (laughs) to Mm. see if I can hear my voice hit that back wall and see if it reaches everybody. And now I know how loud I need to talk from here on out to make sure that everybody can hear me. Everybody's on the same page, you know. So I always set myself up in those ways. Uh, I also don't sit down on stage. I just don't do that. I want, I want to keep my energy up. I like to move around, challenge them to watch me. I'm telling jokes over here. Now I'm telling jokes over here. So you got to mm-hmm. come over here, you know? Oh, that's cool. And that's yeah. a really good idea to 
just say hey guys or hey or yo you know because a, yeah. a lot of comics i've noticed do that and mm -hmm. you'll hear a lot of people say like don't say how are you and things like that because right. it can slow that momentum down and yeah, it it gets a response. From, it's asking them a question. <laughs> um, it's also it's also like the way you say it too, because sometimes I'll say it like, "Hey guys," and then I'm I'm you know I'm up, and it's mm -hmm. it doesn't really matter if you guys aren't up here yet. I'm mm -hmm. we're all about to get up here, so get ready, you know. So I really say it with confidence. Like I don't care if you don't say it back. Most of the time they do because they yeah. they're like oh, she's talking to us. Oh shit! Right. Well, it gets there. It snaps them to attention that you are up yeah. there. But then also, you're not there to listen to them. You're there to hear if the mics yeah, <laughs> are working totally. appropriately and the amps are working <laughs> and speakers are working right. Right. I'm making uh, sure that's I'm funny. all my ready. So you regu more regularly play or most regularly do Caroline's and New York Comedy Club? Yeah, definitely um, New York Comedy Club the most during the pandemic I've done because they've had a rooftop show. That's been really dope. They've been like very safe about every comedian gets their own mic and they temperature check people. Oh, cool. Um, but definitely over the pandemic, I haven't been doing as many clubs. I've been a lot more rooftops, online shows. Mm -hmm. um, I've, I've shot a few commercials. I um, filmed a couple TV shows. Um, I even auditioned for SNL virtually over the pandemic. Uh, oh, cool. In my How did that work? <laughs> oh man, it was so crazy, the craziest experience of my life. It was my first time ever getting an audition. And so the first round was just um I needed to pre-tape five minutes of characters, just any characters that I had. So I I just made up some ones from um like that week's news cycle that I thought mm -hmm. we could make fun of. And then the next round was uh impressions. So uh we had to do impressions of just our favorite whoever's. I did some uh, Steve Martin. I really like him. You have I a pretend. Steve Martin impression? Yeah, I play the violin, so I pretended it was a banjo, and I did <laughs> his um, his late night set that he used to do with a banjo where he doesn't really play a song, he just tells jokes. Um, and I just love, always liked his timing. He's just such a weirdo. I just love... And then the last oh, round was uh, just stand-up. But every round was just, like, silence. If they were on Zoom, they were muted. Their cameras were off. I didn't see, hear them. You don't know if people are laughing. You don't know. Mm -hmm. And you just say it. Um, but I made it to the last round, and I'm really proud of that. And That's awesome. Um, yeah, you know, a lot of people have to audition more than once. So I hope yeah, that... Yeah, and, and who knows what it will lead to later, because Amber Ruffin auditioned for SNL, and then because of how she came across during those auditions, though she yeah. didn't get on SNL, she was writing at Late Night with Seth Meyers, and now she has her own show, and, and also is still at, at Late Night. So... You know. All those failures on the way up, um, I think, help to other things, mm -hmm. especially. Yeah, you're getting, uh, the whole thing is getting in front of people, right? So if you're getting in front of SNL people, you know, those writers, especially nowadays, they have so many projects outside of that show that they yeah. can say like, oh, Chanel Ali, she was, uh, she was really. Yeah, that, that actually happened. I filmed, um, two days ago, I filmed a show for HBO Max called Pause with Sam Jay, who's one of the writers for SNL. Right. Um, so yeah, so she tapped me and said, hey, we're filming the show and it's unscripted. So we're just going to be funny talking about, you know, current things. And we went and filmed it and I feel like it's going to be great. That's um, awesome. And it just, it just seemed like I was already in that conversation already. So it was easy yeah. for them to just, you know, get, let's get Chanel on this. Good for you. 
Yeah, it's pretty dope. And it's 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 so crazy when I'm going through all those emotions, like quickly finding out, oh, you got to tape a television show in a few days. You got to do this thing and you got to be like, whatever, whatever. It's like sometimes my brain is so focused on the work that I don't even congratulate myself. Like I don't even mm-hmm. take a moment mm-hmm. to feel whatever. And then as soon as it's done, I'm like, man, that was insane. Like, I can't even believe we just filmed that television show. And like I met so many people that I admire and it's like so crazy but in the moment i'm like yes then cool let's do it (laughs) Mm -hmm. how is that when it's i've auditioned not for snl but for acting gigs over zoom and it is super awkward because it's over the computer it's just a strange place to do it um (laughs) i booked something actually the other day and it was i I mean, I don't want to make it about me, but it is just a weird process because when you record something and then send it in, you're like, well, that seemed like shit. And then like, I have no idea how that went. And then you do the callback. And I was like, well, this is a super awkward. I can barely hear them. And I have to like lean in <laughs> to the computer. And I'm like, I see myself on the Zoom, like leaning in, trying to hear them. And they're and like, hurry I, up quick. Do it good. One time. Ready? Right, right. I was like, <laughs> all right. And then I just do it, and I, I somehow booked it. But the whole yeah. time, I'm just thinking, like, this is so awkward. So totally. I can't imagine going from doing stand-up, where so much of it is, like, paying attention to the waves of laughter so yeah. that you can get your rhythm right, how to do that on a Zoom where you're not yeah. hearing anything. It's, it's got to be. And, like, I hadn't, at this point in the pandemic, I hadn't told jokes in, like, six seven months I had just been inside at this point this was like last summer so I was like man I'm so rusty I don't even I'm literally holding a flashlight and pretending it's a microphone because I don't have a microphone and I just was like there was a couple moments where I looked in the mirror like can I do this this feels crazy and then every time I sent in a tape and I got to the next round I would like walk in and tell my boyfriend I got to the next round he'd be like this is crazy I'm like this is crazy (laughs) you know so it's just like you have to just take it step by step baby steps and Mm-hmm. Hope that you can show that you have some talent in the little bit of time they give you because, man, and back when we were doing like in like real life auditions, I used to hustle all the time just to get a second to breathe in an audition room. I would say like, oh, before we start, could someone get me a tissue? I need to blow my nose. I didn't need to blow my nose. My nose was fine. I knew that there's no box of tissues in here and that it's their office. So they got to go get it. So you go get it. I'm going to sit here and look at these lines a second. Take a breath. My oh, God. Wow. You know? Like I used to hustle just so I felt like I could get a chance because sometimes they would come in and they'd be like, here, read this whole thing. You've never seen it before in your life. Read this whole thing. So these very complicated car terms about mm-hmm. oil changes and car part and, you know, be witty and funny and like loose and natural. Ready? Yeah. <laughs> I've been in a few of those too. And it's super awkward. <laughs> Give me me a chance, you know? (laughs) I never feel like I get my footing. That's such a brilliant move to be like, oh, can I get a tissue? (laughs) I'll say anything, especially if I feel like I literally, because sometimes in New York City, you've climbed 10 flights of stairs to get to this audition. Right, right. You walk in, they're like, Chanel? And you're like, yes, ready. Ready, let's go. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's like, it's the whole, I, I, I kind of hope that industry does move to doing more at-home stuff, even though I was just knocking how weird it is. Because I don't want to do the... I'll come in for a callback, and I would prefer to come in for a callback. I I I don't want to have to go in for the first audition. No. 
And that's also, I think they get us at our best when we're able to like have as much time as we possibly need to get ready. Yeah, absolutely. And it's just like, there is that, that oh, I got to hop on the train for 40 minutes and then find this <laughs> place I've never been. And then I got to go up to the 10th floor and uh, I'm going to, I'll just sit in this room and like, uh, it's like an hour here uh, that I've been just making it here. And yeah. then I'm going to be in that room for two minutes tops. Yeah, maybe less even if I don't yeah. do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, I love it's when you don't do well, and they're like, "Thank you." <laughs> or would they ask we're, you to like do it? Right. Yeah, <laughs> I would almost prefer that to when they ask you to try. They they keep asking you to redo the thing, and you're like, "Dude, you've gotten several <laughs> takes." I did, I did this one commercial audition where it was like, I was supposed to be on a runaway scooter, like down a hill. I'm on a scooter. It's going crazy. And they're like, scream. And I was like, ah, and they're like, yeah, you sound more like frightened, like, like scream, like you're angry at it. And I was like, ah, you know, I was just was like, I need more time to identify this scream that you're saying, because they just kept saying, no, you sound scared. I was like, I am scared. I am starting to feel frightened about what you guys are even trying to film here, you know? They, they're just so unclear, but want you to be so specific. And it's like, no, 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 no. You're wanting something very, very specific, but that's yeah. not what you're telling me through your words. Like, help me help you. <laughs> I hate it. I went to an audition and um, I walk in and there's four people in the room. And I'm not sure who was running it. And the first person who brought me in gave me the rundown of what I'd be doing. So I did mm. that. And then a second person's like, hey, can you do it like this? And uh, he had me do it a couple times that way. And he like side noting me and stuff. Mm. And then the third guy is like, uh, everyone was sort of like, okay, okay, we got it. But then the third guy's like, um, can you kind of do it like this? And I was just thinking, you mean like the last guy said? <laughs> like, okay. So you do it again? You're like, I, at some point they just get you in your head. Yeah, Just and you start to ask you the same to, thing. They start to make you question what certain words mean. Like, what does louder mean? Now, is it, is it longer? Am I saying it longer? Or yeah. am I? I don't even know what you guys are asking. You know, <laughs> they should all be made to audition under those parameters that they give people, so that they know how bad it is that they are directing yeah. people at these auditions. Some people yeah. are great, though. Some people. Some people are, really are great. Some people are great and they have like I went the first time I ever did a Dunkin' Donuts commercial audition, I booked it and it was me and a, another girl and we had to fit all of the copy into like seven seconds. Ooh. Very quick thing. And he was like, how much emotion do you think you could get in there? Because you you have to split it with her. So you each get three seconds. And me and this girl had such good chemistry going back and forth of just being like, I want to say it like this. Well, now I'm going to say it like this. Well, now I'm going to say it like this. Like we were just playing around mm -hmm. so much. And it was just like, you could feel that he was giving us good direction and good information. And we both booked the commercial right away. And it was just, you know, he, he was clear. He knew what he needed. He knew, he knew exactly how much he needed to test us. And he was like, these girls got it. We got it. Let's do it. I saw and when that. we actually got that commercial, we got it in like three takes. We got it in like five minutes. Oh, that's dope. Yeah. You get to go home early and then you get some free snacks. Love <laughs> it. Love it. The um, Dunkin' Donuts commercial I saw was when we were done up like a Patriots fan. Yeah, that was my last. That's my second one. I've been in two. <laughs> oh, very cool. Very cool. Uh, was it like the same character or are they just like, let's just work with her again? 
I don't even think they even knew that I've been in previous commercials. I it just happened to be another audition that came up and I booked that one. That one was so funny because it's me and a guy on a couch uh, watching a football game and I'm cheering about the game and he's hyped about the Dunkin' Donuts. And when we first sat down to do it, they wanted us to be a couple. They wanted us to be an interracial, not very well matched couple, right? <laughs> and so we sit down and as I'm realizing that's what's happening, I'm like, oh my God, this is how this happens. Like I've seen it on TV, but now I'm about to be a part of it. Uh-huh. So they say, they say, all right, we want to get like some still shots. Can you uh like cuddle up to him? Like, you know, and I'm, look, I am a committed actress. Mm-hmm. I got on this guy. Like I, <laughs> I cuddled. We were at home on a Saturday. Couldn't nobody tell me anything. <laughs> and still you could feel everybody behind the camera go, no, this does not read. <laughs> <laughs> and so they said, we're going to play it as friends. And everybody just went, oh, thank God. Cause like nobody <laughs> wanted to be a part of what was happening. That's um, interesting. And I just think it worked better. It just didn't look realistic or real. It it, it just was like, no, no, no. <laughs> uh, yeah, sometimes people get an idea in their head when they're writing this, the bit or the, yeah. the commercial, and that's what they just want to insist on, even though it doesn't feel right or work in the moment. Um, yeah. Was this, do you think it didn't feel right? Because cause from what I saw of the commercial, I don't even understand why they were trying to go in that direction of your amazing couple. <laughs> It didn't make sense. It didn't make sense that like his idea of romance would be to get us Dunkin' Donuts in the afternoon and watch football and that I would be happy about it. It just <laughs> like it could it could exist. That relationship could totally exist. But we needed one more explainer to understand. Right. And the right. fact that we didn't have it within the context of this commercial, like I yeah. also I, I have a degree in advertising. Like I used to think I wanted to make commercials. I've studied a lot about it. I was mm-hmm. just like. It does not read. There's too many what's happening here that yeah. nobody even know that we're trying to advertise. Dunkin it's Donuts just not the fo- yeah, it's not the focal point of the commercial at all. Right. Like, <laughs> like this who girl, you are this to each got, other. This girl's got her face painted. She's right. hardcore at home into this football game. She doesn't notice that his face is not painted the same. Like what? <laughs> what yeah. world is this where she's like, oh, you're not going <laughs> to. What? Yeah. No, it really doesn't read like there's supposed to be a relationship between these two beyond anything uh, other than they just know each other. They're just really hanging out. Watching They're just this hanging game out. Wow. Yeah, and so like they, once they said that and we shifted our energy, like the way that I was seated changed. Mm. With it, it just got so much better and natural. And we had some really funny takes of just, you know, me saying yes, yeah. being excited, like just saying yes in a bunch of different ways. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's it, the the i saw the commercial and it plays it plays in a yeah. normal way and it would have been forced to try to have you all cuddling up on each other right it w- had nothing to do with the main point of anything going on and i again want to emphasize i got on this man i <laughs> when they said all right cuddle up i said on my job here we go <laughs> I got on him and I still was like, even though I am acting my, I know intuitively, I know this looks terrible. I know it. (laughs) When did wanting to act become part of your desires? Was that something that was part of the full cloth at seven years old? Or is that something that came later? I think later, definitely when I first met with my manager, I told her like, I want to audition more than any of your clients. 
are currently auditioning. I want you sending me out for everything because I want to get started on failing mm. so that we can get started on booking. Um, and as of late, I've started to audition for more serious roles. And that is so challenging. It's such a different world and I'm really liking it. But just like in general, I want to be a full-fledged entertainer. I want to, mm. you know, I want to act. I want to write. I want to direct one day. You know, I want to tell my story. I want to, you know, help other people tell their stories. I just want, when I first met with my manager, I told her, like, I want to be Little Miss Kevin Hart, you know? Mm. It's going to be on that realm of success that I want. And it's important that I'm telling you that in our first meeting so that you'll understand what I'm going to expect or need from you. Because mm -hmm. I know you have plenty of clients who are like, I just want to do the road, you know? <laughs> right. But I, I, I knew that I wanted to have that full circle. Yeah, that's good that you had that conversation. I think when <coughs> a lot of people, when they go for getting an agent or a manager, they don't know what to talk. They just know that they, they have to have an agent or a manager. And so totally. they don't think about end game and what they want and what they need from this agent and how they need to look for that. So it's good that you're having that conversation with them. Yeah, I played really hard to get with with all of my team. I made them really like, you know, show me that you are really hype on Chanel Ali. You got to show me that because I am really hype on her and I think she's going to make it. I think she's a star and I need you to feel like that because sometimes you're going to be in rooms without me, you know? Yeah. So, um, it's really played in my favor. Like my manager is amazing. My whole team is women. And um, when I started meeting with agents, I met with a bunch of like very fancy agencies and big buildings who were like offering me gift bags and fancy things. And um, the last woman I met with was just very like, I am all about you. I know all about you. I think you're a star and blah, blah, blah. And I played really hard to get with her. Um, and then when we left the meeting, she like followed us into the hall and was still trying to pitch me. Like, I really want to work with you. And I was like, yeah, okay, we'll let you know. We get to the elevator. She's like, again, she stops the elevator. She's like, I just want to say, you know, really consider us. We really want to work with you. I said, all right, we'll let you know. We'll let you know. We get down to the lobby. I say to my manager, all right, call her and tell her she's got it. <laughs> <laughs> and she says, really, you don't want to think about it? I said, no, I just wanted to see how hard she was going to push. And that's what I want. So let's sign it up. Let's do it. She's the one I want. <laughs> that's that's cool. Yeah. So you have both. What is, because I've, you hear everything when you, when you oh, yeah, totally. You hear Everybody everything. Knows People, people talk about it so much, and I can tell them, like, you don't even know what an agent does. You don't even know what it is. Comedians are always like, I need an agent. I'm like, no, you don't. You absolutely <laughs> don't need an agent. Um, but, yeah, a manager is mostly supposed to help, um, like, form and shape your comedy-specific aspirations. So they're going to help you finish your script. They're going to help you get a Comedy Central set. They're going to help you get all your jokes together for an album. Uh, let's say you have an idea for a TV show and you want to write it. They're going to get those resources together, help you do that, help you get your podcast. They're going to help with those comedy things that are going to set you in the path to being a very well-rounded and like business savvy comedian. But they usually are not going to pick a person until they've already started to do certain things like that, like had a TV appearance or are starting to book very popular showcases, whatever, whatever. Um, an agent is going to push you into more acting. They're going to push you into more hosting things. Mm -hmm. They're going to slide you into a new TV show. They're going to push projects that are outwardly, that don't have anything to do with your comedy aspirations, but they think you would fit into. 
mm. they're going to do those type of things. So the, the auditions that I get from my agent are very different. The notes that I get from my agent are very different. Mm. My manager is much more like, I care about you and your artistry and your development. And my agent is like, sell, sell, sell. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So it's very different energy. I think they're both very good. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's different. An agent's going to help with touring and things that are, you know, greater than just working on your jokes, you know? That's a great breakdown. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Let's talk about Chanel number one, your album. It came out last year and it came out with a lot of great fanfare. I saw some really great reviews for it. It Sounds like it was an overall good experience. It was, yeah. It was definitely a labor of love. And I think putting out an album during a pandemic slash civil rights movement Mm-hmm. Uh, wasn't my plan originally, <laughs> but I think my curly hair made it, you know, apt. So <laughs> it was, it was a good time for me and I'm so proud of it. And I can't tell you, um, how many people just, you know, walk up to me. Also, it's, it's gotten really popular on uh TikTok. A lot of kids on TikTok have found it mm-hmm. and they've made videos just like mouthing the words to some of my jokes. And man, that just, literally made me cry so many times seeing this video seeing these kids especially these little black girls just in the mirror doing my stand-up and killing it it just it fed me ten thousand times i can't even explain it also when it started i remember the day that it came out i beat out um uh weird al i think he also had a release I think I beat him out. And for 12-year-old Chanel, that's that's crazy to believe. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, that's really cool with that album. I mean, you're a year, about a year out from that release, right? Yeah. What is next after getting an album? Is it let's do another album? Or is it like once we get back to normal life, is it going to be focusing on touring or, or something else? Um, well, right now, according to my manager, she she really wants me to focus on um, Netflix, maybe getting a Netflix special. Um, obviously, I can't do any of the material that was on the album. So right now she's focused on uh, keeping me busy and joking so that I'm building up a good 15, 20 that we can mm-hmm. pitch to Netflix. Um, just because they every year they have a couple of comedians, they give me specials, too. And, it you know, it feels like I'm getting close to that realm where, you know, I already have a a Comedy Central set and an album. Hey, maybe Mm -hmm. you could trust me on Netflix. Let's get crazy. Let's get crazy. Um, But yeah, I'm really focused on acting. I like doing voiceover. I did some voiceover in 2019. I want to do much, much more of that. Um, And touring in 2020, I was supposed to go to Australia and do the Melbourne Comedy Festival. Unfortunately, the pandemic canceled Mm -hmm. that, but I am so eager to get back on the road and just be out there touring. I, I can't wait to just joke with people and, you know, feel safe and feel like we're doing it in a responsible way. So yeah. I, I'm happy to be vaxxed and ready to go. <laughs> yeah, we're so close. Yeah, we're so we're close. close. Well, I can't believe it. We're already at the end of the episode. I don't I know how that happened so fast. This has been a great talk. <laughs> we did it. <laughs> um, let's create something together. I feel like we talked a good bit about you know in regards especially to the difference between an agent and a manager what are ways maybe this is the direction we can go for creating something together what are the ways that someone can prepare themselves to get that sort of representation to to build themselves up to where they can earn that or 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 achieve that i always say that you have to um 
put your mindset into that of what you seek. So when I wanted a manager, I thought to myself, well, if I was a manager and I was looking for new clients, where would I go? Well, based on New York, I know that I wouldn't go to the comedy clubs because most of those comedians have managers or agents or are just doing their own thing and they're booked enough that they're, you know, they don't really need to be broken onto the scene. I'm going to go to independent shows that are also, you know, well ticketed, that pull a good crowd, that force people to do very good comedy there. Um, and that's where I'm going to stoke out new clients. So when you think like that and you know that, then you know that in those types of shows, you have to be showcasing all the time, which oh. means as soon as you get to that show, you need to say hello to people. You need to shake some hands and be friendly and engaging and show them that you know how to work a room. When you get up on your state on the stage and you do your set, you have to have a set list and it has to be, you know, tight. And you have to do a set that is um, replicable in another way. So let's say you get on stage and you do a bunch of crowd work and you're killing. Everybody's loving you. They're laughing so much. That manager that's sitting in the audience is not going to be impressed because you can't do crowd work on Netflix. I mean, you can but you can, but the crowd will be different. It's going to be a different person. You're not going to be able to recreate that magic. So what a, a manager is going to look for is jokes that a person could do on Jimmy Fallon. They could do on late night. That sounds close to being done. That has a beginning and an end and a middle and takes people on a journey, pulls them in, has a different perspective, you know? So your set should be a seamless transition of those best bits that you have. Mm-hmm. Um, And then afterwards, you have to hang around. You got to mingle, have a drink, make it virgin. If you know you got a problem, you got to you got to be that whole package. Yeah, because that's what they're looking for. If I was a manager, that's what I would be looking for. So keeping a temperature of the room, you should be you should know who's in the room most of the time. Obviously, you can't, you know, remember every manager's face, but you should know if there is an important person in the room like an actor or someone from SNL. And if you see that person, then you absolutely should showcase for them specifically. Mm-hmm. I, I often have changed my set based on who was in the room because I know they're going to be super attracted to these Philly bits or they're going to be super attracted to this joke about my grandmother. I know they have a connection with their grandmother and they're going to like whatever it is, you know? Um, so like thinking about showcasing and how important that is to do when we have um you know, good stage time is, is really like central to getting a manager. That's really what it is. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people think you can just look up in the directory and email people a tape. You could do that. I don't know anybody that's ever gotten a manager that way, but <laughs> you could do it. I think, you know, when you put yourself in that mindset, then you understand more of what that person is looking for. And then you're able to show them what parts of you already have that. Right. And you were mentioning being able to work the room and be that full package. I assume that's because if you want to make it in the industry, you have to be able to pitch and you yeah. have to be able to sell to a certain degree. I mean, if you're in certain avenues of the industry, you have Absolutely. to be able to go to those parties and like sort of the talk first, up stuff. The first big industry meeting I ever had was before I had a manager. It was with the True TV and they had just saw me. One of their producers had saw me at a show in Brooklyn and she came in and was like, hey, we just want to talk to you. We want to see what you've been working on. And that's hmm. it. That, that's we came into this room and they said, what have you been working on? And they listened. And I thought in my head, OK, well, if I was them, what they're trying to do is find out what ideas do I already have that they could grab and make into a bigger thing. So I just started saying, them, well, I have an idea for a show where girls only prank guys and we do it on the street. And it's all things that are based on strength. Like I lift up something really heavy and then I ask a guy to lift it and he can't because we've magnetized it 
And now me and him have an awkward kind like, you know, this, this is our ideas I have. And every time I pitch them and just gave them a crazy idea, I watch them say, oh, and write it down because they're interested and they want to know what, what are comedians thinking? We are magic. What can we create? You know? So in those men, in those meetings, you got to be able to sell yourself. You got to be able to sell something that you can already see that's never been made. You don't have any sketches. And that's a skill that you can see in a room when somebody is working it. And it's work. I don't want anybody to think, to hear this and think, man, I love pitching. I just love telling people my ideas and knowing that they don't get it. I just love it. No, it's terrible. <laughs> it, there are plenty of times when I work a room in comedy and I'm hating it, hating it, and I'm killing it. I'm the life of the party. But it's part of this. It's part of this thing that we have to do. Yeah. Well, there it is. Thanks so much for being on the podcast, Chanel. Thanks for having me really great having her on i hope you enjoyed that and you can follow her on social media on twitter at chanel underscore underscore ali and on instagram at chanel ali you can also listen to her new album chanel number one it's on several things you can listen to albums on Pandora, Amazon Music, Spotify, Apple Music, iTunes Store. You can download it from there. Why are those two different things? Uh, Deezer, Google Play, Napster, SoundCloud. Go check that out. Of course, we have links in bio to that. And also, don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at There It Is Pod. And follow me on Twitter at Jason Farr Jokes and Instagram at Jason Farr Picks. And go to ThereItIsPod.com to find out more about the podcast. Until next time, be good to each other. The music for the theme song was created by Neil Brooks. The rap was written and performed by Nick Acevedo. The logo for There It Is was created by Jeff Prater. The There It Is podcast is produced by Jason Farr. (laughs) 